So um, I've been invited this morning to speak uh, about worship. So my name's Tim, and uh, my wife and I, Becky and I, we lead the music team here at Open Door. And we were just invited to, to speak about worship. So I'd like to talk to you today uh, about costly, intimate, heartfelt, extravagant worship. Good. Okay, I'm glad that's, that's, that's good. Okay, before we get into it, though, I'd love just to pray. So uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. I pray that through what I've prepared and by your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us this morning. Amen. So if you want to turn with me, or more likely if you've got a phone, want to scroll with me to uh, Luke 7, uh, that's where we're going to be looking today. Luke 7, starting at, at verse 36. If you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The verses will appear on the screen uh, behind me as we go. But let's pick things up at Luke 7, verse 36. Joseph, if you've got that one for us, that would be great. I'm going to read. Oh, I think we're getting there. Well done, Joseph. Great job. Okay, so we're going to read from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So here we have Jesus being invited to uh, a meal with a Pharisee. It's given in, in Jesus's honor, we learn in John 12. And this Pharisee is called Simon. And we know that Martha was serving and Lazarus was one of the guests uh, there who'd been raised from the dead. I mean, can you imagine? That's one incredible party anecdote. Can you imagine sitting next to someone and they say, did you know I was once dead for four days? I mean, there's no topping that as a party anecdote, is there? And there's thick tension in the air. Okay, Jesus and the Pharisees have been clashing majorly in, and increasingly so. Jesus tore into them and called them blind leaders of the blind. He called them unmarked graves. He said that their father was the devil. And they believe he's a fraud. They're jealous of his following. And they're planning to arrest him and to kill him. In Mark 14, one of the parallel passages, we learn that the only thing holding them back is they're worried that the people might riot if they do that during the festival. And then in amongst all of this, we have Simon, this Pharisee, inviting Jesus and hosting Jesus for a meal. Why? Now, it could be that Simon's a dissenting voice amongst the Pharisees. It could be that he wants to make up his own mind about Jesus. Yet the way things unfold, I think this meal was more about Simon than it was about Jesus. Jesus may have been the star guest, the stellar name, but Simon doesn't honor him with any, of the, any special treatment. He doesn't even give him the basics of hospitality. And we'll come back to that thought later on. Let's read on. Verse 37 and 38. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Oh, wow. So the tension was already thick. It was already one of a pretty interesting party to be at. You could cut the tension with the knife, and then in comes this uninvited guest, this woman, who's a notorious sinner, and she bursts into tears. She's sobbing, and her tears are dripping down on Jesus' feet. Then she bends down and wipes his feet with her hair, kisses them, and pours perfume on them. Can you imagine? 
I mean, I've been at some awkward parties before. At our wedding, we uh, had friends and family from both sides. And on one side of the room, we sat um, Bex's family from a strict Baptist tradition. And on the other side of the room, we sat our friends who had a relaxed attitude to alcohol. Probably best way to phrase it. And we were thinking, okay, where, how can we put everyone in this room? And into this experience, I, um, in, whilst giving my, my, my groomsman speech, I, I ex- announced that our second date had been a swinging event. Now, what I meant to say was an absolute mental blank was go ape experience. That's what I was trying to describe. And the words that came out of my mouth was we went for a swinging event on our second date. Now, I actually hope that that went over the heads of most of the people in the room, but some of our friends found it absolutely hilarious. And I don't know what some people think to our dating experience to this day. But what this woman does, that blows that out of the water. I mean, completely. If you're thinking that in that culture, this would like be an ordinary, normal thing to do, guess again. This is even probably more out there in that culture than it would be in ours. She was an uninvited woman. She was a sinner. Some people think that might be code to say that she used to live as a prostitute. She uncovered her head and let her hair down. This was disgraceful behavior. It was outrageous. The whole party would have been in disbelief by what they were seeing. I sort of imagine the conversation stopping dead and people just staring open mouthed at what they're seeing. If it's difficult to picture this sense of, well, she stood behind him, but she's can kind of like the tears dropping on his, dripping on his feet. How does that work? Well, there would have been quite low tables they were sat at. And the way you would sit would be kind of like this with your legs kind of trailing out that way. It's almost like kneeling with your legs going kind of down behind you. So when she came, behind him would be where his feet were. Okay, so that kind of sense, if you can picture what that was. But this was, this was an outrageous thing. And then a few of them begin to mutter. And you can imagine that in the room. The conversation picks up and let's pick things up at verse 39. When Simon saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So we get a glimpse now of Simon's motives. If this man were a prophet, he says to himself. Mark's gospel records that he's not the only one muttering this. So Simon might have hosted this dinner in Jesus' honour, But in his heart, he's not honoring Jesus at all. In fact, it's more about him. It's more about Simon, his status, that people would look at him and know that he was the one who hosted Jesus for dinner. Now this sinner, this woman, has come in and and she's ruined all of that. And Jesus allowed it. Simon is worried about how it's going to reflect upon him. So Jesus notices the reaction. And I love the way that Jesus does this. He makes this a teachable moment. You know, he could have just confronted Simon straight out, but instead he tells a story that teaches everyone in the room but gets right to the heart of the situation. So Jesus tells Simon a story, a parable. And in the parable, there are two people who owe money. One person owes 500 days wages. The other person owes 50 days wages. The money lender decides to cancel the debts of them both. Then Jesus asks Simon a question. Who will love the money lender more? Simon responds with the obvious answer. The one who's had the bigger debt cancelled. And then Jesus hits him with a sucker punch. Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? I mean, of course he sees her. Everyone in the room has seen her. Everyone's noticed what she's doing. But he's saying, do you see her? Do you understand? Are you judging her? 
Or are you seeing the person underneath? Have you written her off because of her past? Or do you see the heart behind what she's doing now? Then Jesus explains the meaning of the story so everyone can hear, and you can imagine how Simon feels about this, everyone can hear the special greeting he's had at this meal hosted in his honor. Simon has neglected the basics of hospitality. He's failed to provide water for Jesus to wash his feet. That's a basic courtesy. He didn't greet Jesus with a kiss, another basic ordinary greeting in the culture. And he'd not put oil on Jesus' head, which was less common than the washing of feet and the the greeting with a kiss, but still a normal thing to offer somebody who is a guest of honor for this meal. And so Jesus is confronting Simon with a question. Which person in the parable is he? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard for us to receive God's forgiveness if we don't think there's anything much to forgive. If we think we have little need for God's grace, our response to him will be limited. In reality, there's no difference between Simon and this woman. They both need God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. But the difference is, it's the woman who knows it. She knows it, and so that's how she responds. Simon is too full of himself. And so I want to highlight a few things about this woman's response, which I think is the kind of worship that Jesus desires, the kind of worship that we at Open Door Church I want to offer him. And in this story, I see that this woman's worship is costly, intimate, heartfelt, and extravagant. Let's look at those together. So firstly, it's costly. True worship is costly. This alabaster jar of perfume was expensive. I mean, Mark tells us it was pure nard, which is apparently some plant called spike nard, and it was used to, um, the the, uh, perfume was used for preparing a body for burial. But it's very expensive. This was like her life's savings. It was over, worth over a year's wages. And Mark tells us as well that she broke the jar. It's like she wants to take nothing of it home. She pours it all out. Wow, that is a costly sacrifice. Did you know that following Jesus is costly? It's not the first thing we kind of share when we're trying to kind of evangelize and tell people about Jesus. Do you know that following Jesus costs you your whole life? It's not the most appealing, but it's true. You know, we, there's two great truths of the Christian faith. God accepts us just as we are. There's nothing that we can do to earn his love. He takes us just as we, as we are. He offers his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. No strings attached. A free gift. It's incredible what we have that offer through Jesus. Yet, he doesn't stop there. What's our response going to be? God accepts us just as we are, but then he wants to transform our whole lives. He comes and takes home in your heart by his Holy Spirit, and there's no aspect of your life that he doesn't want to touch. You know, your your time, your money, your attitudes, your thoughts, your relationships, your work, your rest, your possessions. He wants it all, and he's not going to be happy to be in a little section of your heart. You know, he will in terms of he, he lives there, but he's going to be drawing you closer. And it's for our good, because actually as Jesus transforms all of those things, he brings freedom, and he brings liberation, and he does us good. But there's a sense of laying it down. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. In view of God's mercy, offer your whole life as a sacrifice. This is your true and proper worship. Some of the translations of the Bible put that, this is your reasonable service. It's reasonable. In, in terms of what God has done for us, it's reasonable. It makes sense to offer him everything 
in return. It was Jim Elliott who said, he's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he meant it. Jim Elliott was a, an evangelist who went to a tribal group in Ecuador that he was trying to reach with the gospel, and they murdered him. Um, and his wife went back in and finished the mission. Incredible journey, incredible story. There's a little story in the Old Testament where God tells King David to build an altar in a very specific place, the threshing floor belonging to Arona the Jebusite. I don't know why, um, but now David's the king. He could just go to Arona and say, I need your threshing floor. And in fact, Arona offers it him for free. But David says this, he says, I won't accept it for free. He insists on paying the full price. And he says he won't offer God a sacrifice that costs him nothing. But that's not always easy, is it? We all have parts of our lives that we want to hang on to control of. We all have parts of our lives which feel like they're very precious to us and it's difficult to give up. I was speaking to a friend the other day and my friend is a massive guitar geek and he's got a whole room at home with all sorts of guitars, like really great guitars, guitars that are signed even by famous bands and musicians. And one of his friends has just learned to be a worship leader and he thought, oh, it'd be really cool, I could gift him a guitar and he sort of picked one out and think, okay, I'll, I'll pass on that guitar to him to bless him. And then he heard Jesus whisper, let him choose the guitar. Ouch! Ouch! My friend loves Jesus, though, and he did it. He said, right, um, I'd just love to give you a guitar. Do you want to come around my house and you can pick a guitar? And the guy picked out the guitar, and he chose the guy's favorite, absolute favorite guitar. And he said there was this moment of like, eek, and then just joy and peace. And now every time he sees the guitar being played, he just feels joy and excitement to see it in the hands of somebody starting in, the, in worship leading. And it's like it's brought him freedom and liberation. I don't know why Jesus asked him to do that. It could be that guitars were becoming a bit of an idol to him, something greater in his heart's affections than Jesus. And by giving, letting go of this guitar, it brought him closer to Jesus and he blessed his friend. But let's also just not look past the sacrifice of money. Martin Luther said that a Christian goes through three conversions, the conversion of your heart, the conversion of your mind, mine's not in my pocket, the conversion of your wallet. But it's something true, isn't it, that actually our, our life's priorities do show up on our bank statement. We've got a couple of gift days coming up at church here at Open Door. And we used to do this often um, at my previous church, but every time we had a gift day. Um, just turn to the next person next to you and say, if you don't want to give, don't give. Go for it. Turn to the person next to you and say, if you don't want to give, don't give. No, nobody, please hear this really clearly, and, I'm, and I know Dave would, would back this up. I'm sure Dave would back this up. Um, he says, look at me, no, 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 he would. Nobody is under any obligation to give. Absolutely not. We give out as part of our worship. It's a heartfelt response. That's what we, why we give. No one's under any obligation. Yet giving is part of our worship. What we do with our money is part of our worship. It's an act of obedience. So what's Jesus saying to you? Pray about it. Listen with an open heart. There might be similar response in terms of Ukraine. There may be options and ways to make a difference there. So, worship is costly because God is calling us to offer him our whole lives, a living sacrifice. I wonder what Jesus is speaking to you about. I wonder if there's something he's asking you to lay down or let go of. I wonder if there's something he's asking you to do that might feel costly. Whatever it is, he's worth, worth it. He is so worth it and he longs to do you good. You can't outgive Jesus.
So second, notice how intimate this worship from the woman is. I mean, it's borderline scandalous, isn't it? She's sobbing onto his feet, kissing them, drying them with her hair. And there's no hint from Jesus that he's embarrassed by this or that she's gone over the top. She's commended for it. I've heard it put like this. If God was a nationality, he would not be stiff, upper-lipped British. He just wouldn't, okay? If God was a nationality, he would be emotive, expressive, Latino, okay? There's a, a kind of more of a picture. I'll be like, some of us need to take off our cultural lenses and see our worship and God through kingdom lenses. We don't worship a God who stands far off, cold, remote, distant. No, we worship a God who is close, affectionate, intimate. We felt that something in the, in the worship today. It was a beautiful moment as we just individually meeting with Jesus and his closeness his, of his presence. We worship the running father who runs out to us. In the middle of our Bibles, there's this whole book that compares the relationship between God and his people to two lovers. Yeah, that one. We don't read from it much, especially with the children in the service, but it's there. And it's, it's talking about that, that intimacy with God. This woman is so caught up in, a, in her affection for Jesus, it's like no one else matters. What would that mean for our times of corporate worship? How could that inspire us? There are times when Jesus is speaking to us all, but there's also those times when he comes and meets individually with us. Let's pursue that. Let's learn to dwell in his presence to meet with him. You know, when um, Jesus died, um, the Bible says that the curtain in the temple, the 60 foot a 60 feet high uh, curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. And this curtain separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple. And the Holy of Holies was where God's presence was said to dwell. And only one person, the high priest, could go in there once a year. And it's like when that curtain was, curtain was, temple in, was torn in two, we became the new temples of, the, of God. He came and lived in us by his Holy Spirit. We have access to the Holy of Holies. In a way, we are the Holy of Holies. Our God dwells. He's that intimate. You know, if God was a rock star and he had a VIP lounge, you would be in it. You've got access. We've got that intimacy. How incredible is that? Third, there's no doubt that this response is heartfelt. It's raw, it's honest. By doing what she did, this woman was breaking every cultural rule that she knew and she just didn't care. She had to respond anyway. I need to say something about culture here too. We are a diverse congregation of all sorts of traditions. Please don't think that your response to Jesus needs to look the same as the person next to you. It really doesn't. We wanna just break off any of that. Come and respond however you like to respond whether that's to kneel, to lie down, to dance, to shout, to cry, to sing, to ululate, whatever is your way of responding to Jesus, please feel welcome to do that. We'd also love to grow the diversity of our worship team here and, um, and, the, and in the songs that we sing. The body of Christ is made up of a lot of different cultures and traditions and it's multicultural, so we want our worship to be the same. Um, so please do speak to Bex or, or I if you're interested in getting involved. We're also longing for more uh, people who play instruments at this time, especially percussion. So any percussionists out there, again, we're really interested from hearing from you. Cajons, djembas, drum kits, you would just love a little bit so we can move a bit more easily in our worship. 
Right, so box over. Sorry, I had to, had to do that. You expected it. I'm going to get up here and worship and not give that plea. But this, this woman's response was heartfelt. I know Jesus is speaking to me on this one. It, it's so easy sometimes to come and just go through the motions. As I get older, I'm so aware that it's easy to let my passion for Jesus cool. Um, I read passages in Revelation talking about a, a lukewarm response and they challenge me. I know Jesus is calling me to return to the, my first love. Friends, who wants to renew their passion in Jesus? Yeah, yeah, me too. He longs for a people who worship him in spirit and truth. This woman's response was a wholehearted offering. She was all in. From John's gospel, we think this might be Mary, sister of Lazarus. So she's so grateful that Jesus has raised her brother from the dead. And we know from this passage that she lived a sinful life. Maybe it was prostitution. Maybe it wasn't. Does it really matter? Not really to me. It's a past that, that she's been forgiven. Her gratitude to Jesus was overflowing. And you know, the truth is that Jesus offered the same grace to both Simon and Mary, if only Simon could see it. You know, I'm Simon here. If I could grasp just how much God has forgiven me, if I could grasp just how amazing his love is, wow, I know that's how passion grows. But there are things in life that come sometimes and get in the way, aren't there? There's times when we've had wounds from the past. There's times when we've had hopes or prayers unanswered and and there's cynicism. There's obstacles in our faith. What happens when you don't feel that heartfelt response? What happens when you're left with more questions than you are, than you are with answers or anything else? You know, sometimes that's a short season, and sometimes it can feel like a really long season. If you're in that season right now, let me try and offer you some encouragement. You're not alone. You're in good company. Christians throughout the ages have talked about times of, of, of spiritual dryness, have talked about times of doubt, have talked about the dark night of the soul. So what helps? Well, first, this is really practical, but don't ignore the basics of life. A good friend of mine, when I was going through a really tough time, just said two really quick questions. How are you sleeping? How are you eating? And it's, it's funny because I think um, sometimes when we're going through really sort of struggles in faith, the rest of life can also feel all over the place. And it's kind of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you're familiar with that. And a sense of taking care of the basics sometimes can put us in a better place to receive what God has got for us. Just taking care of ourselves and the basic things of life can actually help us to be open to hearing from God. There's a little verse in Hebrews that says, Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. It's like curious. It's like, well, how does making a path level heal the disabled? It, it doesn't. But actually, by having the smooth path, we're in the position to receive that from God. By putting in the basics of life to look after ourselves, that helps us to be in a position to respond and hear from God. Second, keep pursuing honesty in your relationship with God. Go to the Psalms and find your voice amongst them. If you're frustrated, tell God. If you're angry, tell God. I love that we had some of that today going in, our, in our prophetic. You know, if you're feeling hurt or disappointed, tell God. God is big enough to take anything you are feeling. He longs to hold you close. He's like a parent that holds a child in the midst of the tears and the screams. Third, there are, some, there are pathways into worship. Start with thankfulness. Thankfulness leads to praise. Praise leads to adoration. Adoration leads to intimacy. 
but it starts with thankfulness. Sometimes I've literally come in and I've written 10 things I can be thankful for in that moment, a little list just to stir my heart to worship. Fourth, doubt. Here's the thing. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. Unbelief is the opposite of faith. Unbelief is an attitude that sets up against God. Doubt is the question that says, where are you, God? Where are you, God? Doubt and faith are two sides of the same coin. They can come together. And lastly, just to say, hang in there. If this is you and you're in this season, we, your God's got you. And we, your church family, also want to be there to support you too. And there'll be some time for prayer, we hope, at the end. So just to sum up, in this place, we want to bring our honest, heartfelt response to Jesus. Don't go through the motions. Don't feel that this is a place you need to pretend. Here it's okay not to be okay. We're family. And so finally, this Mary's act of worship was extravagant. The disciples moaned about the waste, saying the perfume could have been sold and the money given to the poor. The crowd rebuked her. Mark tells us that this was the moment that Judas decided to betray Jesus. They just couldn't take the fact that this woman had wasted the perfume on Jesus. Do you know, that's the heart of extravagant worship. It's lavish. It's almost wasteful. I mean, in one sense, what's the point in spending time singing songs to Jesus? What does it achieve? I mean, we, we could live, hear some great talks from Dave and we could learn about our faith and, go, and, and learn about God. We could go and volunteer at a soup kitchen and feed the poor and the hungry. We could uh, go and t- share the good news with our neighbor. We could pray. Even prayer might change some things. But why do we spend a significant amount of our time when we come together singing songs to Jesus? But of course, it's, it's not really wasteful at all. Like we, it's the natural response of the people of God who are in love with God. And the truth is, you can never outgive God. We don't come to worship for what we can get. But as we pour out our hearts in worship, he draws close to us. As we shower our affections on Jesus, he showers his love on us. His over-the-top, extravagant love. And that, of course, takes us to the cross. Because the perfect picture of costly, intimate, heartfelt, extravagant worship is Jesus. He bore the cost of our sin. In intimacy with the Father, he said, not what I will, yet what you will. He chose the cross because of the joy set before him, a heartfelt response of love. And through his death and resurrection, he wants to offer grace upon grace upon grace on you. He lavishes his love on us. So what about us? I think it's easy to hear a a talk like this and think, right, I I must uh, try harder. I must make my worship more costly. I must make my worship more extravagant. I must be more intimate with God. I must, I must, I must. But that's not it. Please don't think that's what what I'm saying. Our worship is a heartfelt response to Jesus. We love because he first loved us. There's no performance here. There's no judgment. God is inviting you deeper. Jesus perfects our worship, even in our brokenness. Mary knew she had been forgiven much, so she loved much. Costly worship is released when we meditate upon the costly price paid for us. Intimate worship is released when we know God invites us into his very throne room. Extravagant worship is released 
when we receive God's extravagant, all-embracing love for us. So there's an invitation for you. God is calling you deeper into intimacy with him. That's what I long for for this church. 